The time is now. Volume 5, Episode 105, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host and the Vice Chair of Labor and Employment here at Cozen O'Connor. You know, I am old enough to remember back in 2020 when people were clamoring for OSHA to get into the mix and say something specific and do something specific with regard to COVID-19. Boy, have they here in 2021. And after dipping their toes in the water a bit this past summer with an emergency temporary standard for the healthcare industry in particular, we just got ourselves a doozy on a Friday and then certainly some action over the weekend. It is Monday, November 8th, 2029. And just this past Friday, November 5th, OSHA published the big ETS, the Emergency Temporary Standard, that everyone has been waiting for since President Biden announced his intention to have OSHA do so back in early September. So let's try to dive into this a little bit and first talk a little bit about where we are right now. So as if that were not enough fun for people to digest on a Friday when it was published in the Federal Register... On Saturday, we all got the news that, yes, the courts are open for business on weekends. This past Saturday, November 6th, the Fifth Circuit, the federal court sitting in Louisiana, issued a stay, granted a motion for a temporary restraining order, essentially a temporary stay of enforcement of OSHA's ETS with a very accelerated briefing schedule for both sides to submit briefing uh, to further develop the record and the arguments on why the ETS should or should not be struck down. But on Saturday, November 6th, the federal court and the Fifth Circuit granted the temporary stay Opposition papers are due to be filed uh, just a little bit ago, 5 o'clock p.m. today on November 8th, with reply papers due tomorrow by 5 o'clock p.m. November 9th. We'll see how that goes, but interestingly enough, there are 11 other cases that have been filed, about a dozen in all. And so procedurally, there are two points that I think are worth mentioning. Number one, With regard to this temporary stay granted by the Fifth Circuit, it's not completely clear whether that applies nationwide such that it will stay the enforcement in all states and all jurisdictions for all companies, or whether, as it seems to me, the temporary stay issued by the Fifth Circuit only applies to the Fifth Circuit and those that are doing business within the Fifth Circuit. 
But that might have been the first case through the door, but certainly has not been the only one. As I said, in total, there have been about a dozen lawsuits primarily arguing that OSHA's new ETS is unconstitutional. The Fifth Circuit, in its decision, challenged uh, a temporarily stayed enforcement of the ETS, saying that um, there were grave statutory and constitutional issues raised by the lawsuit, uh, and it needed further briefing. But here's the second really interesting procedural point, and you don't really see this very often. Under federal law, an agency is required to notify the um, Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation if there is more than two challenges filed in federal appeals courts within 10 days of the agency taking action. You very rarely see that happen because very rarely do you see multiple court challenges, let alone within 10 days of an agency issuing a rule or a proposed regulation. But here, that is exactly what has happened. And the Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation has been set up so that you're not dealing with the same issue and essentially the same arguments by multiple circuit courts around the country. They can get it consolidated, and there can be one resolution. The next question is, how does it work? And without bogging you all down in the uh, technical details here, what you do need to know is now that you have had more than two federal appeals courts uh, receive lawsuits challenging the OSHA ETS within 10 days of OSHA issuing the ETS, this is now going to be before the Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation, which then is required to assign all of the consolidated cases, which will all be consolidated into one proceeding. It'll consolidate those before one federal circuit court. And they do that by holding this multi-circuit lottery. The understanding is that that's going to happen within the next two weeks, I believe on November 16th so that the Judicial Panel on Multi-District Litigation is going to hold this circuit lottery on or about November 16th to assign the consolidated cases to one of the federal appeals courts that has received at least one of these challenges. Once it does that, then um, the circuit court that has gotten the assignment will be able to rule ultimately on uh, enforceability or lack of enforceability of the new OSHA ETS. And eventually this will make its way, we suspect, to the United States Supreme Court. All of this is interesting, I guess, because of the further time constraints that we have here. As I'll get into in a few moments, because this is an emergency temporary standard, the T being temporary, this rule is only going to be in existence at most for six months. So until May 5th, 2022, that is unless and until uh, either a court strikes it down completely or OSHA enacts a final or a more permanent rule. And in doing that, OSHA has announced that it is going to be holding a 30-day comment period until December 6th, 2021, for all stakeholders on both sides of the aisle to weigh in on comments 
for OSHA to take into account, presumably in developing or thinking about a final permanent rule to come here to the extent that will happen uh, when this one expires again by May 5th, 2022 at the latest. So for those of you, for those organizations or for those industry groups who want to submit objections or some kind of comments, either on an individual basis or on a collective basis, this is your time to do so. Please reach out to your council. This is certainly something that we have done and uh, will be doing on behalf of clients during this 30-day period. So that's where we are right now on the appeal front. Uh, Again, putting aside this issue of whether the Fifth Circuit stay of enforcement applies nationwide or just as I think it does to those within the Fifth Circuit, there are a lot of people asking, well, what do we do now? The Fifth Circuit has acted, and we suspect that other courts will act now. What do we do? And I think the most conservative recommendation is that for those employers To the extent they have not already implemented mandatory vaccine policies or more specifically have not enacted policies that exceed or meet at least uh, what the new ETS requires, you probably should prepare to meet the deadlines that I'm going to get into in a few minutes. You should prepare to comply with the new OSHA ETS. What you don't want to have happen is if all or a big chunk of the ETS is ultimately found to be valid and now your organization is scrambling to comply with the ETS requirements or worse, you have gotten past the deadline and you have not yet done what you're supposed to do. So I think there is probably something to be said for getting yourself prepared, getting yourself ready if you haven't already. And then, well, you'll stay abreast of what's going on. You'll listen to this podcast. And if the ETS is struck down in whole or in part, it's a lot easier to pull back on what you've done than, as I said, scramble to try to meet your obligations when you hadn't prepared to do so before. So putting aside stays of enforcement and litigation and attacks on the OSHA ETS, let's unwrap the primary requirements that you need to know and talk a little bit about what we know as of right now with what OSHA has published on November 5th, 2021. There are going to be a lot more details in the weeds than what I'm able to address in this podcast episode, and I'm sure you will all have many more questions that are specifically applicable to your industry and your organization. But I did want to hit the high points and do talk about the primary obligations in this new ETS. So uh, let's get started right away and let's start with how the ETS itself starts. Uh, Whether you want to call it defensive sounding or not, the ETS is pretty upfront about what it's attempting to do. And it says, quote, this section, the new ETS, is intended to establish minimum vaccination, vaccination verification, face covering, and testing requirements to address the grave danger of COVID-19 in the workplace and to preempt inconsistent state and local requirements relating to these issues, including requirements that ban or limit employers' authority to require vaccination, face covering, or testing, regardless of the number of employees, end quote. Clearly, OSHA has taken the position that there is a grave danger still 
in November 2021 that needs to be addressed and that this new ETS is necessary to address that grave danger. It's also being very clear in taking the position that its ETS presents uh, preempts states like Texas and other places where they are attempting at the state and local levels to impose their own prohibitions or requirements on this subject matter. Vaccinations, verification of vaccinations, face coverings, and testing requirements. So the ETS starts off right off the bat telling you what its purpose is. Now, let's talk a little bit about the scope of the ETS and how one is supposed to determine the scope. Again, as we anticipated, this is intending to cover employers who have 100 or more employees, a total of 100 or more employees, and the ETS says that that has to happen at any time this section is in effect. I'll get back to that in a moment. So who is covered and who is not covered? Well, the new ETS does not apply to, number one, those who are subject to the guidance already issued for federal contractors and subcontractors. And it also does not apply to those settings where any employee provides health care services or health care support services that are subject to the healthcare industry specific ETS. And again, it doesn't say employers that have employees who provide healthcare services. It says that the requirements of this ETS do not apply to settings where any employee provides healthcare services or healthcare support services. So you can have an organization with sort of hybrid roles. And so for those, for example, in your corporate offices that are not going to necessarily be subject to the healthcare industry ETS, you will be subject, or those employees are presumably subject to this ETS, whereas those employees in your organization's facilities that do provide healthcare services or healthcare support services, the settings where they're performing those roles uh, are going to still follow the healthcare industry ETS and not this new ETS. Those are the employers or the organizations that don't have to follow this ETS. What about the employees to whom this new ETS does not apply? There are three. Employees who do not report to any workplace where there are other individuals present, such as co-workers or customers, this ETS does not apply to them. Those employees who are working from home and while they are working from home, this new ETS does not apply to them. And lastly, the requirements of this new ETS does not apply to those who are working exclusively outdoors. Okay, so few more things worth noting when determining who is protected. And there's a difference that you need to note between counting employees to see if you meet that 100 employee threshold and whether the employees are protected. So for employees who perform work at off-site locations, such as customer homes or other office locations, they're all supposed to be counted 
to determine whether you meet the 100 employee threshold. Even if they're working from home, those employees are supposed to be counted again to see if you meet the 100 employee threshold. Those employees working from home are not going to be protected by this ETS while they're working from home, but again, they do need to be counted in order to determine whether you meet this 100 uh, employee threshold. It's also important to understand that this is not location by location, but the 100 employee count looks at the entire business so that you should be counting at the employer level, corporate-wide or firm-wide as opposed to an individual location. So, for example, if you are a single corporate entity and you have multiple locations, all of the employees at all locations are counted for purposes of determining whether you are covered by this ETS because you have 100 or more employees. Part-time employees do count toward the total number of employees. However, independent contractors do not count toward the total number of employees. But the usual asterisk right there, make sure that those you are considering to be independent contractors are truly independent contractors. What if you have some employees that you have from staffing agencies? Well, OSHA seemingly has addressed that as well. If you are an organization where you have employees at your site who have been provided by a staffing agency, it is the staffing agency that has to count those jointly employed workers for purposes of determining their own 100 employee threshold for coverage purposes. You as the organization that is taking in the staffing agency employees, you are only going to be counting your permanent employees, not your temporary employees. So that if your organization, for example, has 85 permanent employees, and 40 temporary employees who are provided by a staffing agency, you are not going to be covered by the ETS because you don't count the staffing, agents, uh, staffing agency employees. You only count your permanent employees to see if you meet the 100-employee uh, threshold. What if you have a multi-employer work site, for example, a construction site? You have one host employer, you have a general contractor, you have a subcontractor, each of those entities only counts its own employees to determine whether each of those organizations meet the 100 employee count um, for this new ETS. Very importantly, when do you determine if you meet the 100 employee threshold for coverage under the ETS? What if your numbers, your employee count fluctuates over time? Well, OSHA has made this very simple. If you have 100 employees at any time during the effective period of this ETS, essentially uh, for the next six months, you are covered by the ETS. It doesn't matter if you have 100 employees today or tomorrow and then in a month from now, you have fewer than 100 employees. At any point in time, if you reach that 100 employee threshold during the effective period of this ETS, you are now covered by this ETS for the duration of its effective date. So you're going to look at, as of November 5th, 
2021, which is the effective date of this ETS, if you had 100 or more employees on November 5th, you're covered for the duration, regardless of whether you drop below 100. On the other hand, if you did not have 100 employees on November 5th, and you subsequently have 100 employees during the effective period of this standard, from that day forward, you are covered by this new OSHA ETS. For unionized workplaces, uh, there's nothing that's really different there. Employers who have unionized workplaces with 100 or more employees must also follow the minimum requirements established by the ETS. Uh, the ETS is not intended to take the place of collective bargaining agreements that exceed the requirements of the ETS, but any collectively bargained agreements must at least meet the minimum requirements set forth in the ETS. Continuing on, let's talk about what the ETS essentially does now that you've determined that you are covered. At its core, companies with 100 or more employees who are subject to uh, OSHA's jurisdiction must either require covered employees to be vaccinated, fully vaccinated, or you can allow them to choose to be tested weekly and have a face covering, wear face covering while they're in the workplace. Let me say that again. You are given a choice as an employer. One of two things you must do if you are covered under this new ETS. You either have to have a mandatory vaccine policy, the only accommodations being those who cannot be vaccinated for medical reasons, those who have to have their vaccinations delayed because of some condition, or those who cannot get vaccinated because of a sincerely held religious belief or practice. That's option one, mandatory vaccine policy with those three exceptions or accommodations. Option number two, you are allowed to give your employees the choice to opt out of the mandatory vaccine policy, provided that instead they submit to weekly testing and wearing required face covering while in the workplace. Let's drill down a little bit uh, to that with some questions about factual situations that may come up. So uh, are you allowed as an organization to mandate vaccines for some without a testing choice, but have a hybrid policy for others in your organization? The answer is yes. There may be situations and there may be organizations where a full vaccination policy makes more sense and where others in the organization may be more, uh, may make more sense to have a more hybrid policy for others in the organization. An example given by OSHA is where you have a retail employer. Some of your staff is working at the corporate headquarters. Some are performing telework from home. Some are working in actual retail stores serving customers. In that situation, OSHA has made clear that it is perfectly permissible for the employer 
to choose to require vaccination of just one subset of its employees, for example, those working in stores with customers, and then have a hybrid vaccine or testing policy for those who work in their corporate headquarters or those who work from home. Either way, employers would be complying with uh, OSHA's ETS. If you are having a mandatory vaccine policy, there are certain things that must be included in the mandatory vaccine policy. So it's important to do two things. Number one, it's important to understand what OSHA is requiring that you put in your policy. And number two, it's important if you already have a mandatory policy, you've already implemented one before this ETS came out, it's important for you to go back and take a look at your policy because you may have to add certain components if your existing vaccine policy does not meet or exceed all of the requirements that OSHA has set forth in its new ETS. Things like defining the requirement for COVID-19 vaccine. Things like the applicable exclusions from the written policy, specifically the three that I just noted. Information on how to determine an employee's vaccination status and how the employer intends to collect and maintain that status. What the requirements are for paid time off and sick leave for getting the vaccine and for any side effects after you've gotten the vaccine. What obligations are there for employees to notify the employer of a positive COVID-19 test? And what is to be done with respect to removing those employees from the workplace if they test positive for COVID-19? Finally, there is certain information that OSHA is requiring employees to be given as part of their policy. So again, it's important to understand what these specific substantive requirements are and to the extent that you already have a mandatory vaccine policy that you've implemented, go and look back at it and make sure you meet OSHA's new ETS requirements. One other question that uh, we have been getting, what if you don't want to require unvaccinated workers to get vaccinated? What if you are continuing to incorporate safety precautions at your workplace, whether it's physical barriers, whether it's social distancing, testing, face cover, uh, social distancing and other face covering requirements? Can you be exempt from the ETS testing option? The answer is no. Your safety and social distancing requirements while may be good still to have in your workplace, they cannot supplant the ETS requirement for vaccinations or for testing. However, OSHA does make clear that other CDC recommendations for safety precautions in the workplace may offer additional protection and may be worth certainly continuing. Does your plan have to be submitted to anyone? Does your policy have to be submitted to OSHA? The answer is no. The plan should be made readily accessible to all employees in the same manner as you distribute other information and other policies to your employees. 
However, your organization is not required to submit your policy to OSHA, even though you may be required to provide a copy to OSHA upon request, particularly if there is some audit or investigation. If you decide to have a mandatory vaccine policy and you have a person who refuses to get vaccinated and does not meet one of the three accommodation requests uh, that I just mentioned a moment ago, does OSHA's ETS require you to continue to employ that person? The answer is no. Section 11C of the OSHA Act does not prevent employers from taking disciplinary action against employees who engage in activities that are not otherwise protected by the OSHA Act. And OSHA has taken the position that an employee who refuses to comply with an employer's mandatory vaccine policy and who is not otherwise entitled to an accommodation, that individual is not generally protected under the OSHA Act and you would not be required to continue to employ someone who refuses to comply with your mandatory policy. What about those, and this has come up in the news for those of you who uh, watch and follow the NFL and have been hearing and reading all about the Green Bay Packers quarterback uh, Aaron Rodgers and and the position he's been taking with regard to the COVID-19 vaccine. There are groups of individuals out there who have said that they don't need to be vaccinated because they have natural immunity that they have gotten COVID-19 before and they have antibodies and so it's not necessary to get vaccinated. OSHA does not accept that position. And in fact, OSHA's ETS specifically does not offer any exemption or any accommodation to the mandatory vaccine requirement based on the presence of antibodies or based on someone's belief that they have natural immunity. So how do you determine an employee's vaccination status? The OSHA ETS talks a little bit about that as well. First, the employer has to require that every vaccinated employee provide proof of vaccination status in an acceptable form, including whether they are fully or only partially vaccinated in the instance where there is a two-dose requirement. So for example, that might include a record of immunization from a healthcare provider or the individual's pharmacy, a copy of the official U.S. COVID-19 vaccination report card, a copy of medical records that document the vaccination, a copy of immunization records from a public health state or tribal immunization system, or a copy of any other official document that contains the following information, the type of vaccine administered, the dates that the vaccine was administered, and the name of the healthcare professional or the clinic site that administered the vaccine. What happens in situations where an employee doesn't possess a vaccination record because, for example, it was stolen or it was lost? Well, that employee, in the first instance, should contact their vaccination provider, their physician, their pharmacy, to obtain a new copy or go to their state health department's immunization information system to try to get another copy. In those instances, after that first attempt has been made and an employee is still unable to produce some acceptable proof of vaccination, 
an employee in that instance can provide a statement that is signed and dated that attests to their full or partial vaccination status, attests that they have lost or are otherwise unable to provide proof required by the ETS, and affirmatively state that they declare or certify, verify, or state that the statement they are signing about his or her vaccination status is true and accurate, and that he or she understands that knowingly providing false information regarding vaccination status on that statement may subject the individual to criminal penalties. So uh, for employees who have no other means of obtaining proof of vaccination, the ETS permits employers to accept those signed attestations as long as they meet the substantive requirements that I just gave you. However, in the first instance, an employee must show that it made he or she made some attempt to get another copy of a COVID-19 vaccination record. Another critical point here. In the beginning of this process, when we were starting with vaccines and, and keeping records, employers in many instances were creating their own checklist so that an employee would come to management or HR or whomever else was designated, would show proof of vaccination, for example, and the employer would not keep a copy of that proof, would simply check off on that checklist that the individual provided proof that we just eyeballed. Under OSHA's new ETS, that is no longer permitted. Under the new ETS, the employer is given various options for acquiring proof of employee vaccination. So, for example, an employer can get a physical copy of a vaccination record, or they can get a digital copy, either a photograph, a scanned image, or a PDF of the record, as long as it's clear and legible. However, to comply with the ETS, the employer has to show that they are maintaining a record of each vaccination status. It's not enough anymore that an employee simply showed the employer their vaccination status. The employer must retain either a physical or a digital copy of the actual vaccination documentation. The employer also has to keep a roster of vaccination status for all of its employees, not just vaccinated employees, but the employer is required to keep a roster that lists all of its employees and indicate for each employee whether that individual is fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, not fully vaccinated because they have some uh, accommodation, or they are not fully vaccinated because they have not yet provided acceptable proof of their vaccination status. As always, the records maintained by the employer as well as the roster required to be created under this ETS, they are all considered to be employee medical records so that they cannot be maintained with the employee's regular personnel file and they must be maintained as confidential medical records. They also can't be disclosed except as required or authorized by this ETS or by some other federal law, including the Americans with Disabilities Act. A lot of discussion also lately about booster shots and 
Are individuals going to be getting booster shots? Are they obligated to get booster shots? The ETS does not speak to booster shots when it talks about someone being fully vaccinated. When they're talking about being fully vaccinated, it's the one-shot Johnson & Johnson or the two-shot Pfizer or Moderna. Once they fulfill those either one-shot or two-shot programs, they are considered fully vaccinated after the waiting period. Booster shots and additional doses of any vaccine are not addressed by the ETS and do not impact whether somebody is deemed to be fully vaccinated under the new ETS. Take a little breath right there. Are you all understanding this? Is it all clear? Are you all hoping that the whole thing gets struck down tomorrow so you don't have to worry about it? What about when there is this concern that employees are going to show you some fraudulent or fake vaccination documentation. Well, OSHA makes clear that employers are not going to be required to be the police or be forensic analysts. Employers certainly are not able to invite or facilitate fraud, as OSHA says, but on the other hand, employers are not required to monitor for or detect fraud either. So the ETS requires employers, as part of the policy and the information to be given to employees, it requires employers to tell employees about the prohibitions under the OSHA Act for fraudulent submissions and verifying what you are providing as information as well as the criminal penalties that could be associated when one knowingly supplies false statements or false documentations and again since OSHA wanted to beat a dead horse on this point they said specifically quote and although employers are not required to monitor for or detect fraud these same prohibitions on false statements and documentation apply to employers, end quote. So the next component I wanted to talk about uh, in this ETS, it's referred to as employer support for employee vaccination. Employer support for employee vaccination. And I want to differentiate time spent getting the vaccine and time spent having to deal with any side effects that may arise as a result of getting the vaccine. And here, let me just pause for a moment because we've talked about this before. I'm going to get into right now what the ETS says about payment obligations, but it is so critical for you to understand that when it comes to wage and hour obligations and what items you may be required to pay for or reimburse to an employee when it comes to getting the vaccine or getting tested or what leave may be required there are many states out there that are providing state and local requirements in this wage and hour front make sure you are following those state and local obligations don't just think that if it is or is not spelled out in this federal ETS that is the end of the analysis but for purposes of OSHA's ETS Let's start off by talking about what is required when it comes to getting the vaccine. 
Employers are required under the ETS to support COVID-19 vaccination by providing reasonable time during work hours for each one of the vaccination doses and is required to provide up to four hours of paid time for each dose at the employee's regular rate of pay. So I want to be clear on that. There are two components to that. You are required as an organization to provide a reasonable amount of time during work hours to get each dose. The ETS does not spell out what reasonable time means. However, you are only required to pay up to four hours of paid time at the regular rate of pay for the time spent getting the vaccination. So, for example, it may be reasonable in a particular situation for an employee to need seven hours of time to go and get vaccinated and go through that whole process, but you are only required as a company to provide up to four of those hours of paid time at the employee's regular rate of pay. And that payment cannot be offset by any other leave that the employee may have accrued, such as sick leave, vacation leave, or any other PTO. That requirement for a maximum of four hours of paid time for each dose, that has to be a separate payment. So that's the time getting the vaccine. What about the costs for getting the vaccine? The answer to that is OSHA has made clear in this ETS that employers are not obligated to reimburse employees for the ancillary costs incurred to receive the vaccination. So, for example, um, for cost registration costs, uh, time spent completing required paperwork, uh, travel, transportation costs, gas money, train or bus fare, those types of costs do not have to be reimbursed or paid for by the employer, again, subject to state or local law on those wage and hour issues. Now, I want to talk about side effects. That was dealing with first payment for the time spent getting vaccinated. What about time incurred if you are suffering side effects from the vaccine? Can you require in that case that the employee use accrued leave time to recover from vaccination side effects? And the answer is yes. If an employee already has accrued paid sick leave, then the employer may require the employee to use that paid sick leave when recovering from side effects experienced following a primary vaccination dose. If your organization doesn't differentiate between different types of leave because you have one PTO, you may require that your employees use that leave when recovering from vaccine side effects. If you have different types of leave, however, in other words, you differentiate between sick leave and vacation leave, you are only allowed to require that employees use the sick leave when recovering from vaccine side effects, not vacation leave. However, this is also important, your company cannot require employees to use advanced sick leave to cover reasonable time. You can't require that an employee have negative paid sick leave or borrow against future paid sick leave to recover from vaccine side effects. 
In other words, as OSHA says, you are not allowed to require an employee to go into the negative for paid sick leave if that employee does not have accrued paid sick leave when they need to recover from side effects experienced following a primary vaccination dose. What happens if the employee gets vaccinated outside of work hours as opposed to during work hours? Do you still have to grant them reasonable time for vaccination? The answer is no. If the employee chooses to get a vaccine dose outside of work hours, you're not required to grant paid time or pay for that time uh, spent receiving the vaccine during non-work hours, again, subject to state and local laws to the contrary. However, even if the employee does receive a vaccine dose outside of work hours, you must still afford them reasonable time and paid sick leave if they have side effects that they experience, which renders them unable to work during scheduled work time. You can, as a company, set a cap on the amount of time that you provide to employees for them to recover from side effects. Obviously, Every individual and every individual who has side effects is going to be different in terms of the time needed. OSHA, however, has provided some help to employees, uh, to employers, I'm sorry, on this point. And the ETS specifically says, quote, uh, OSHA presumes that if an employer makes available up to two days of paid sick leave per primary vaccination dose for side effects, the employer would be in compliance with this requirement. End quote. So again, employers are simply required to provide reasonable time to recover from vaccine side effects without a definition of what is reasonable. However, OSHA has suggested that if you make available up to two days of paid sick leave per dose in the event of side effects, that would generally put you in compliance with the requirement. So we've been talking about uh, mandatory vaccines. I started off this discussion by saying that the ETS provides a second option. If you don't want to have a sole mandatory vaccine policy, you are allowed to have employees be given the uh, choice to get testing. So what does the ETS say about COVID-19 testing for employees who are not fully vaccinated. Well, you are required to be vaccinated if you are coming into a workplace uh, where there are other co-workers, other individuals like customers present. You need to be tested on a weekly basis every seven days and wear appropriate face covering. But what if your unvaccinated employee doesn't come in regularly during the week, doesn't come in at least one day a week? What if the employee only comes into the workplace once a month? Does that employee need to be tested every seven days still if he or she is unvaccinated? The answer is no. That employee, if he or she is not coming to the workplace at least one day a week, that employee does not need to be tested on a weekly basis. In those cases, the company must ensure that the employee is tested for COVID-19 within seven days before returning to the workplace and that the employee provide documentation of that test result upon return to the workplace. Do you have to maintain a copy 
of each COVID-19 test result for each of your unvaccinated employees who are choosing this testing option? The answer is yes. Like we said before, you have to maintain a roster of the vaccination status of all your employees, and you have to maintain a physical or a digital copy of the vaccination proof. Here, too, you are required to maintain a record of each test result that is required to be provided by each employee under this ETS. And, again, similarly, those uh, test result records must be maintained separately from the employee's personnel file and cannot be used or disclosed outside of what is permissible under the ETS or federal law like the Americans with Disabilities Act. There may be some cases where an employee who is entitled to a reasonable accommodation from the vaccine may also need a reasonable accommodation from the testing requirement. For example, if testing itself conflicts with a worker's sincerely held religious belief or practice, that worker may be entitled to a further reasonable accommodation from the testing requirement. So please keep that in mind when analyzing a particular situation. How long does an employee have to submit to weekly testing if they choose not to be vaccinated under a policy that allows for the testing choice? Well, you are, as an employer, required to comply with this new ETS as long as it is in effect up to the six months to May 5th, 2022. So if you have unvaccinated employees in the workplace, those employees must be uh, subjected to weekly tests until either they become fully vaccinated or until the ETS is no longer in effect. If you have a vaccinated employee who tests positive for COVID-19, do they need to be removed from the workplace? The answer is obviously yes. Regardless of the COVID-19 vaccination status and regardless of whatever COVID-19 testing is being done or test results have been received, any employee who tests positive for COVID-19 must be immediately removed from the workplace. And that employee must continue to be kept out of the workplace until one of three things happens. The employee receives a negative result. The employee meets the return to work criteria in the CDC isolation guidance or the employee receives a recommendation to return to work from a licensed healthcare provider. In cases where an employee is removed from the workplace because he or she has tested positive, the ETS does not require employers to provide paid time off in those situations. But again, and I'll say it again, paid time off may be required by other laws, state, local, regulations, statutes, may be required under collective bargaining agreements, but it's not required under this ETS. If an employer tests positive, I'm sorry, if an employee tests positive for or is diagnosed with COVID-19, the employer under the ETS is not required to conduct contact tracing. State and local public health 
requirements may exist in your jurisdiction when it comes to contact tracing for those who test positive or who have been diagnosed with COVID-19, but this ETS does not impose any contact tracing requirements. If an individual uh, has simply been exposed to a COVID-19 positive person, but has not himself or herself tested positive, that individual does not need to be removed from the workplace. What information needs to be provided to employees? Are employers required to provide specific information regarding the ETS? The answer is yes. Companies who are covered by this ETS must inform each of their employees of certain specific information and it must be provided in a language and at a literacy level that the employee understands. Here is what needs to be provided. The requirements of the ETS and any policies and procedures that the company establishes to implement the ETS. Employees also must be given information about COVID-19 vaccine efficacy, safety, and the benefits of being vaccinated. They must be told of the requirements that prohibit employers from discriminating or taking adverse action against an employee for reporting work-related injuries or illnesses or otherwise exercising their rights under the OSHA Act as well as informing employees of the various prohibitions that I mentioned a few minutes ago that talk about criminal penalties associated with knowingly supplying false statements or documentation. The manner in which your company provides this required information is, as OSHA says, going to vary depending on the size and type of your workplace. But the ETS has given companies the flexibility to communicate the required information using whatever effective method is typically used in your particular workplace so that you can provide the required information through email communications, through a printed fact sheet, through an oral discussion or at a team meeting. There is no formal training requirements under the ETS and there is no specific method under the ETS as long as you provide substantively the required information that must be provided under the ETS. Finally, what are the effective dates here? What do you have to do and when do you have to do it? Well, as we've been talking about, this ETS is going to be in effect for at most six months through May 5th, 2022. Maybe it's time is shortened by an ultimate decision that permanently enjoins enforcement, permanently strikes down the ETS. Until then, there are certain effective dates that you must think about. So, for virtually all of the requirements under this ETS, you must comply within 30 days of the effective date or by December 4th, 2021. For the requirements specifically dealing with testing those who have not completed their entire vaccination dose, that has to be completed within 60 days or by January 4th, 2022.
So to say it again, you are required to start testing those who have not been fully vaccinated by January 4th, 2022, but all of the other obligations in the ETS, including the obligations that I've gone through in the past hour, those all must be complied with starting in December 4th, 2021. So that is a lot to grasp. We're going to be talking a lot more about these individual requirements. We're going to be talking a lot more about, I suspect, some of the court action and the legal challenges and some court decisions that are likely to come down in the next few days and the coming weeks. But I hope this has given you in just under 60 minutes an overview of what the ETS has said and what the ETS has not said for those of you who are subject to this new ETS. Keep the questions coming. Keep the comments coming. Let me know if you have any specific questions that you would like addressed. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.